Hey everyone, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. I actually think that the weakness of the Republican Party might be exaggerated. I think that Democrats are going to have to work really hard to elect a governor in what could be a pretty bad Democratic year. When you assign a commissioner bureaus, those bureaus become all important to them and everything else becomes unimportant. If you had a bunch more people who were responding to the events that don't really require a person with a gun, then in effect, you would increase the size of the police force to deal with actual crime. All right, folks, today we have a very exciting guest. I think Alex and I both agree this was maybe our most interesting conversation on the podcast so far. We had Steve Novick. It's hard to choose exactly what the right title for Steve Novick is. He was uh, probably most known for being a Portland City Commissioner. He was a litigator for the U.S. Department of Justice and worked on some very high-profile cases during the Reagan years, as we talk about in the podcast. He came back and he ran... He was the chief of staff for the Senate Democrats back in the day. He ran for the United States Senate and narrowly lost to Jeff Merkley in the primary. Uh, Merkley then, of course, went on to beat Senator Gordon Smith in the general election. And so, yeah, he's got deep experience in politics at the local level, at the state level, and at the national level. So in this episode, we really do bounce around and cover a lot of ground. He's a very funny guy. There's a couple of times where I was actually laughing because he's very funny and super, he's well-read. He's citing different sources. So I think folks will enjoy it. You will have to, we've got some politics in here that's fun, but you're going to have to eat your vegetables and listen to us talk about property tax reform. He describes the property tax problem in a very understandable way that I was useful for me even. So I hope it's useful for listeners as well. But Alex, given the scope, what stood out to you in the conversation? One, he said the GOP is in a much better political position than most people think. I thought that was super interesting. I don't think a single Democrat has said this we've had on the podcast so far. Two, he actually said that Democrats should push forward with messaging on vaccine mandates, which at least from the polling that I've seen, I think are pretty unpopular, at least nationwide. Maybe they're more popular in Oregon as a more left-leaning state. But I thought that was pretty interesting. And we also had a really fascinating conversation just about big tech. His experiences with Uber, to me, is that was so cool to hear that story firsthand because I remember reading it in like the big, you know, it was in the New York Times. There, yeah, Ben literally is showing the book right now from Mike Isaac, who's the New York Times technology reporter. But yeah, super interesting episode. And one thing which I actually thought was interesting, we didn't really talk, we, well, we didn't talk about this at all in the episode, but he is very much, I think, like, he was a populist before his time, like a progressive populist, I feel like. He did not mention, except for the vaccine thing at the end, there was not a single mention of any sort of like identity politics or really any social issues either. He is really, his sort of brand of progressivism, at least in the episodes, at least in the issues we talk about are like very economically focused. Like it was not the same as Bernie Sanders, but like that's kind of the vibe that he gives to me. And I thought that that was really interesting because I feel like that sort of brand of like economic progressive in Oregon, that's gone away a little bit. And then people are focusing more sort of on like racial identity issues and things like that. So that was just, interesting to see kind of that little bit of generational gap just in terms of he's been out of office for a couple of years too. I did just, um, I thought it was true, but I Googled it to confirm. Um, Steve Novick did endorse Bernie Sanders in 2016 for the presidency over Hillary Clinton, which I think you were right to pick up on that. And when he ran for Senate, his tagline was like, 
fight for the little guy. That's always been his MO. He mentioned that actually, it came up a little bit when we were talking about the Uber thing. He had the, the very sad comment about Willamette Week and his tombstone. <laughs> but yeah, I think that is an astute observation. And I think you hear it again at the end when he talks about 2022 and what Democrats should be talking about and how we should be framing it. But I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you all enjoy listening to it. And thanks again for listening. Make sure you're subscribed if you're not already. Our last episode, Alex, is going bananas. There's a lot of folks downloading the Mayor Carrie McQuiston episode. So if you haven't listened to that, that's uh, there's some fireworks in that one as well. But yeah, thanks again for listening. And with that, we'll head on into the interview. All right, everyone. Well, today we are very excited to welcome Steve Novick to the podcast. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Not too bad. How are you guys? We are hanging in there. It's a Friday afternoon, but uh, the tree lighting ceremony in Tigard is this evening. So I'm very much looking forward to that. The hard thing about interviewing Steve Novick is trying to figure out exactly what to ask because you ran for federal office, you held local office, you've worked at the state level in several capacities. So usually we try to pick one or two focus areas in an interview, but I think in this one, we're going to cover a lot of ground, we hope. So buckle up listeners and Steve, thanks again for joining. Before we jump into like policy or politics, one of the famous parts of your background is you graduated from the U of O at age 18. And then you got your degree from Harvard Law School by 21. Can you explain mechanically for the listeners, how does one actually go about accomplishing that? How did that happen? It was a function of the problematic school funding system that Oregon had back when I was a kid. I think that something happened in the Goldschmidt administration that prevented this from happening again. But it used to be that in most school districts in Oregon, The voters every year, or maybe it was every two years, had to agree to pay enough property taxes to keep the schools running. And I was in ninth grade in Cottage Grove, and in Cottage Grove, normally the school district would send out a measure that was enough to actually run a school, and the voters would vote that down. And then they would send out a measure that was enough to run a skeleton school, and the voters would approve that. And in whatever it was, 1975, 76, the voters of Cottage Grove decided, you know, we always vote for the second levy. What happens <laughs> if we don't vote for that one either? Oh, no. And what happened was <laughs> schools ceased to exist in South Lane School District 4J for several months. And my family had a friend who was an art history professor at the U of O. And I started taking classes at the U of O. And I liked the classes and did okay in them and just decided to stay there. That so it's purely an accidental <laughs> thing. So what you're saying is cuts to school funding are positive because they create people like you who go through the system faster. <laughs> I hope that is not the inference people draw. <laughs> that was uh, that would be quite a spin on that, Ben. Maybe you can use that for your next school board campaign. <laughs> yeah, we won't talk about that. No. <laughs> so, Steve, I do have to ask you one more question about your background, because I know that when we had first met, Many years ago, you said that you spent some time in D.C. as a litigator, I believe, at the EPA. And if I'm not mistaken, you had said something along the lines of it was one of the funnest jobs I ever had because I was suing big polluters while under the guise of President Ronald Reagan. Uh, <laughs> uh, is, that sounds like something that I would have said. Yes, it was, uh, that quote it was, has still was, stuck with me almost 10 years later. So. I'm honored to hear that. Yeah, it was awesome to stand up in court and say, 
Steve Novick, Your Honor, representing the United States, especially when Ronald Reagan was president. <laughs> like, I was actually with the Justice Department, not EPA. We were representing EPA in most cases. I had a couple of cases with Interior. But uh, yeah, we did Superfund and clean air and clean water cases. And I actually wound up with the Love Canal case, which was by the time I got it 13 or 14 years old and gradually brought it to a pretty much a conclusion. Hmm. So I spent a lot of time learning about things that happened during the Carter administration. Yeah. Yeah. That, that guys has always stuck with me because I'm sure many of your opponents thought this is certainly not the guy that I voted for. Well, so, Uh, so actually before we move on from that, I am, I am curious. So you worked for the federal government during a very conservative administration. There was like lots of questions or like discussion on the democratic side during the Trump administration about whether it was the patriotic thing to go work for the Trump administration and try to mitigate disaster. I mean, no offense, Alex, I know you had a different reason for working for the Trump administration, but on the left, there was this question of like, is it the more patriotic and correct thing to do to work and do the best you can or to say, I'm not willing to be a part of this and resign your position? Did your thinking on that develop with Trump? Well, in the Reagan and Bush administrations, for me, it was easy. The Justice Department, you know, the Environment Division, I think generally got minimal, if any, political pressure. In fact, when I interviewed for the job, the section chief told me, our assistant attorney general is from some right-wing think tank out west, but don't worry about it. He doesn't bother us. (laughs) And that was largely true. EPA had been very much affected by Ann Gorsuch Burford's sort of anti-environmental bent. But then she went down in a scandal that I only vaguely remember And then the administration seemed to decide they didn't want to get hammered in the environment so much. So I believe they briefly brought Bill Ruckel's house back to run EPA. So things had sort of eased up ideologically in EPA, too, by the time I got there. Hmm. So, I mean, in the Trump administration, it was much harder. I mean, a, a number of my friends are still there. And I was just talking to one friend who said that she thought that she made a difference staying around and making it harder for the administration to take really awful environmental positions. But for us, it was easy. I mean, my boss said they pretty much let us alone. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay, so Steve, so transitioning a little bit. So you you go to DC, and then then you come back to Oregon. And eventually, you end up declaring for Senate, which I want to talk about in just a second. But can you tell us what obviously the, the race was very close, I believe that you had just lost in the Democratic primary to Jeff Merkley by I think two or three points, if I'm not mistaken. So Super competitive primary, very close. But when you eventually came back to Oregon, what sort of got you involved in, in local politics and the Democratic side? Or like, what was that kind of career transition back from D.C.? I, I came back with an interest in getting involved in politics. In fact, I took a sabbatical from the Justice Department for a few months to work on Kitzhaber's campaign in 94. No um, so when I came back, it was with the idea that I have a chance to get involved in politics. And I sort of stumbled from one thing to another. I got a job as the policy director for Tom Bruguer's ill-fated campaign for Senate <laughs> in 1996. And then I thought that I would probably just get a regular law job and like, you know, do some politics on the side. But somebody encouraged me to apply to be the caucus administrator, the chief of staff for the Democrats in the state Senate. And I don't think I'd ever set foot in Salem. And I thought, <laughs> I'd have no qualifications for this job, but okay, sure, I'll send them a resume. And I wound up getting the job partly because you know the interview panel of Kate Brown, Ginny Burdick, Avel Gordley, and wow. 
think it was Joan Dukes, like me. <laughs> it might also have had something to do with the fact that they were outnumbered 20 to 10. So maybe a lot of <laughs> established political operatives didn't want to be part of an organization that couldn't even deny a quorum. <laughs> so I <laughs> was so there for a couple of years. And then randomly, Tim Nesbitt, who later became head of the AFL-CIO, asked if I would join and, in fact, be the only employee of an organization designed to fight Bill Sizemore's right-wing ballot initiatives. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I kept on getting these sort of odd jobs. Well, I guess the running with the Senate Democrats isn't that odd, but I kept on just stumbling into these jobs that came out of nowhere. And all of them were involved in politics and policy. One of the jobs that was most fun is there was a nonprofit that was largely funded by the public employee unions that was trying to figure out how to improve public discussion of tax and taxes and government budgets. Hmm. And we were obviously we had a point of view, but we were, you know, we provided raw facts and we did little seminars for PTA groups and so forth. But also we on April 15th, we did events to tell people where tax dollars go. And we like figured out for the typical family how much of their tax bill goes to police and defense and Social Security, et cetera. And we would march around Pioneer Courthouse Square with signs chanting things like pay and taxes can be rough, but they pay for important stuff. Uh, <laughs> and one of the interesting things what, what, is that- What a rallying cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you want police in schools, you have got to pay your dues. <laughs> but I mean, one thing that was interesting was most of our folks were, you know, the folks we, uh, we, we had people carrying these signs to Pendleton, Medford, et cetera. Wow. And in Eugene, we had a hard time getting people to carry the sign that said the national defense 10% because the people in Eugene are like, no, we must be spending 50% of our tax dollars in defense. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, no, it's actually of all taxes about 10%. <laughs> so I mean, we were trying to address, you know, conservative myths about, or hopefully about, you know, the amount of money that goes to welfare and foreign aid, but there's somewhat less dramatic myths on the left too. Nobody thinks their taxes are mostly going to things that they like, but that's actually <laughs> true. Yeah, no, fair enough. And Steve, it's it's kind of funny to hear you talk about some of these issues. And I will say one thing that made me pause is when I, before I was prepping for this podcast, of course, I was doing my homework and I was reading a little bit more about your primary. And it said that you had aggressively campaigned for Jeff Merkley after he won the primary. And I paused for a second. I was like, why would he even need to do that? But then I quickly remembered, of course, I was like, oh, yeah, this was actually a really competitive race because Oregon politics used to be competitive. Well, and there was an incumbent <laughs> Republican. It was Senator Gordon Smith. Yeah, and I was like, oh, yeah, Gordon Smith was a big deal. Like, he won office a number of times. That used to just be a thing that happened. Uh, and obviously, uh, I have to tell you, this is, uh, this is a bit self-aggrandizing, but I just a couple of years ago, I looked it up and discovered that Jeff beat Gordon Smith by slightly more than he beat me. I was slightly more difficult to beat than Gordon Smith. <laughs> well, so before we <laughs> but go, it was still three, three and a half points. Be, before we go deeper on this, Alex, because I know you have a question, I do have to share. You shared when you had first met Steve. Steve, you, there's no chance you'll remember this, but I met you when I was in high school, and I believe it was a forum at Pacific University, and it was Jeff Merkley, Steve Novick, Candy Neville. And I think his name was David Laura or something like that. It was the four primary candidates. And so there's still a lot of people out there who believe if Candy Neville, who is running a largely anti-war campaign, which you were also profoundly anti-war in the primary election, if Candy isn't in the race, 
then Novik edges out Merkley and moves on to the general and, you know, the world might look a little bit different, but it wasn't just that you came close. It was also like, you might've won if the dynamics of the other candidate, the minor candidates who never really had a chance could have won. So just my, my little two cents. <laughs> that is conceivable, but there's no way of knowing. As to the world being different, Jeff Berkeley has been pretty much exactly the same kind of Senator I would have been. So like, <laughs> I don't think the world is that much different. Just, just Jeff's in my personal life. <laughs> Jeff might've been our governor or something like that. Who knows what would happen? <laughs> <laughs> so, Alex, I apologize for interrupting. What was your question? This is a pretty broad question, but I think it's inter. I really want to hear your take on it just because you've been involved throughout the years and, you know, sort of the changing political process. Could you just kind of describe? You just cut out again, Alex. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Goodness. Sorry, buddy. There's a lot of edits to this episode. <laughs> Alex, doesn't this prove that we need more government regulation of microphone quality? I, I, we, we might need to do that. Uh, buddy, keep it in. Keep that in. <laughs> there, there might need to be some gangbusters uh, in, in terms of the microphones. Uh, but so going back to my question, you know, the, the politics were clearly much different than we were experiencing in Oregon in 2008 than they are now. And I'm not just talking about the issues that people were talking, you know, sort of like the like the policy issues. But I mean, Oregon was much more competitive then. the Republicans had people both elected to statewide office as well as to federal office. And the GOP bench has really just been, I mean, depleted. And you know, you don't need to listen to our podcast to know that because you've witnessed it firsthand. Can you just talk like, how has the political culture in general sort of evolved from your perspective as the Republican Party has just kind of weakened in the state overall? That's a hard question to answer. I mean, for one thing, I actually think that the weakness of the Republican Party might be exaggerated. I mean, people forget mm -hmm. that Chris Dudley almost beat John Kitzhaber and Kate Brown, yes, won fairly comfortably with a really good Democratic year. I think that Democrats are going to have to work really hard to elect a governor in what could be a pretty bad Democratic year. I think that Actually, the ways in which I feel like politics have changed don't have that much to do with an ideological shift. As you were thinking, hinting, I mean, the issues have changed, and now the overriding issue in Oregon, at least one of them, is homelessness and high housing prices, mm -hmm. and that's something that's pretty much defeated everybody. And I mean, the one way in which things have changed is that Democrats spent years and years looking for a new source of funding for education, and in 2019, they finally passed this corporate gross profits tax, which should have a big impact, but nobody's noticing any impact because COVID has scrambled everything, especially the school system. So politics was all about school funding. I mean, every legislative session, it was how much money are the schools going to get, and now that seems to be less of a focus, and particularly in the past couple of years, because the focus hasn't been on how much money we have, but are schools actually functioning? And another thing that's changed is, as you've noticed, there's a lot more bitterness. And the bitterness is between parties, but also within parties. I mean, on the Portland City Council, we had people who called themselves leftists coming and telling us what horrible fascists we were. And most of us on the council were pretty darn liberal. Right. Uh, so there's a, I mean, I don't think Donald Trump introduced bitterness into politics. It's just I've become more bitter across the board, and I don't really understand why. I mean, and our campaign couldn't have succeeded in a bitter environment because we were trying to have some fun, and people seemed to respond to that. We ran funny ads and had funny events, and people were into it. Now I just don't think that people 
would be ready to take politics less than bitterly seriously. That is really interesting to think like, how would people respond to the Novik style ads or not even ads, but like the way you approached it, which was sort of playful. Like the famous ad was uh, have a beer with Steve where you open the beer bottle. Then there was the to tell the truth where these generic politician looking people gave a statistic about you. And then you at the end said, I'm the real Steve Novik. My sense is people today would say, oh, he's not taking the issue seriously or he isn't. It feels like, like, and I don't know if it was Trump or something else, but for me, Trump has raised the seriousness of politics. And maybe, maybe you can correct the record on this, but it doesn't, I wasn't voting at the time, but George W. Bush being president was bad and scary, but it wasn't, ex, it didn't seem like an existential threat. And now the stakes of politics seems higher, even if maybe it isn't. Does that resonate at all with you or do you think it's something else? I think that that's quite true, except that we saw this increasing bitterness in politics just at the local level before Trump was before anybody was taking Trump seriously. And I don't know why people are so angry in Portland. Partly people were angry because we're beginning to see the effect of high housing prices, I guess. But like these people, this group of people that came and just yelled at us every week, Dan Saltzman said that he'd been there for 20 years and he'd never seen things like that before. And it seems like there's a whole group of people who think that the only way to demonstrate how passionately they care is to be hateful to as many people as possible. Mm. And I don't, I mean, maybe that inevitably happens after you've had, you know, 40 years of stagnating living standards for the middle class. And maybe if you look through generations of history, you'd say in the 41st year of stagnating living standards of middle class, politics always turned bitter. But (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, maybe you'd find that in like 1612 or something, but I don't completely understand it. Hmm. Well, that is a good transition. By the way, uh, oh, yeah. just, just as an aside, one overlooked explanation for declining living standards of the middle class is that the post-war economic boom ended in 1973. And the other thing that happened in 1973 was the American League adopted the designated hitter. Uh, <laughs> so if the National League adopted next year, God knows what's going to happen. <laughs> these are the real questions we need to be asking i was gonna say edgar martinez might be offended by what you just said but i don't think he listens to the podcast <laughs> <laughs> so um so the, our next section that we want to talk about is portland and the portland city commission and all associated things and my first question i, I don't know if you read the book or the intro to i'm holding it up for our, our viewers but it's super pumped the battle for uber by Mike Isaac. Did you read this or are you aware of what was written about you in the book? To be honest, I didn't read it. I feel sort of remiss. I've like heard excerpts from it, but I didn't actually read it. Okay. So I will read the, I want to, this is like our first ever fact check portion of the show. So I want to, I'm going to read what he writes and I want to hear your, if you're able to talk about it, your recollection of what he's referring to. So the intro, the prologue of the book, before he gets into the actual meat of the book, is about Portland. And, it, and the story is about Uber more generally, but Portland is emblematic of Uber's approach in cities. And so he paints mm-hmm. the picture of, it's Steve Novick and Charlie Hales sitting together on the phone with David Pluff. And David Pluff, our listeners probably know, is a major player in Barack Obama's campaign side. I think he was campaign manager or chief strategist. He worked briefly for the administration. Democratic guy. But he goes to work for Uber and he calls, I think he calls for this meeting 
there's this great description of you, Steve, in the book where he, he, he says, standing four feet, nine inches tall with thick glasses and a voice that pitched steadily higher as he got angry, Novik was a bulldog. And it goes on from there to describe you. And then it describes Pluff is basically, he's trying to like, just kind of talk you down. He says, well, guys, we're already in a number of suburbs outside of Portland, and there's just so much pent up demand for our services in your great city. He's giving you the kind of politician-y speak. And you, he says, Novik wasn't having it. And this, this, this is your quote, Mr. Pluff announcing that you're going to break the law is not civil. This is not about whether we should have a thoughtful conversation about changing taxi regulations. This is about one company thinking it is above the law. And then there's a little bit more dialogue. That sounds pretty good. But then the, the, the last quote from you is get your company out of our city. And that's the quote that he attributes to you as the end of the, the sort of exclamation point on that call. Do you remember that call? What happened in the David Pluff call? That is exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was just, I was outraged, but I could not believe that this company had just decided, yeah, we're going to start breaking the law. And um, what was, what was the that idea issue? Pluff was going to call, call up and like, try to talk me down. It's like, you don't try to talk people down after you've flagrantly broken the law. It was ridiculous. And well, I have to say, I mean, afterwards, obviously, Charlie was very worried about getting into a prolonged fight with Uber. Had happened in some other cities. He also was like, this is available in almost every other city. We can't deny it to our people. And gradually, I sort of backed off and allowed Uber to come in on pretty much the same terms they are in other places, except that we actually won some concessions, like on services for people with disabilities. We insisted that they actually provide rides for people with disabilities. But I was wrong to knuckle under because it really ruined my image among a lot of people who counted on me to fight for the little guy against big interests like them. So I, mean, I actually told Willamette Week once that my tombstone should read, he should have stuck to his guns against Uber. <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't think that's the, quite fair. But can you? <laughs> well, the, the weird thing is that three members of the city council either voted against allowing Uber to come in, or I mean, for, for a couple of years after I was gone, or in uh, Chloe Daly's case, campaigned against Uber. And after, and I actually thought we should have changed the law to stop favoring Uber. So I, I like said that publicly, and they never got. But the three anti-Uber people never got around to changing the regime. But it's like it's really strange. <laughs> well, so I was just going to ask. It wasn't that long ago, but it feels so long ago. And I'm guessing a lot of folks don't. What law were they breaking? What was the actual controversy about Uber when they first? Came well, they. Here? I mean, at that time we had, and we still have to some extent. I mean, the taxi industry is strictly regulated. If you're going to give rides for pay then you have to have a permit and your permit for a certain number of vehicles, et cetera. And the only licensed taxi firms could operate. And Uber just, you know, they didn't have a license. They didn't have permits. They just decided to start operating. I'm trying to think of, I mean, there's not too many other examples. I mean, it, it's actually kind of like if a bunch of people decided to start practicing medicine without, you know, <laughs> without MDs. <laughs> Well, and so that was actually a question, Steve, that I wanted to ask, because it wasn't just in, like, I remember being in DC and reading this story. I thought it was hilarious. But the thing that I think is, like, it actually is crazy if you think about it. And that medicine example is a great example, because the one I just used with Ben before was, what if ExxonMobil just started randomly drilling holes in the ground looking for oil with no oversight? And then you're like, hey, you're not allowed to do that. And they're like, we don't care. <laughs> right? like, yeah. like, it actually is crazy if you think about it. 
And I don't really think I mean, that any other industry could get away with it, right? Like if people just randomly started practicing medicine, I think police officers would be there very quickly and people would start going to jail. But I'm curious of like, I mean, because you led this experience and you were there up front, like why is the tech industry, specifically big tech, allowed to get away with just sort of coming over regulations, ignoring rules and things like that? And like, I'm not against Uber. I mean, I think they were highly needed to disrupt the taxi industry, which has also frankly gotten a lot better since Uber entered the market. But like, it actually is crazy that, you know, again, they could just, they're just basically doing whatever they want and no one really seemed to care and no one tried to stop them. Well, I don't know. I mean, Uber is an odd example of the tech industry because the actual industry is cars driving around. And what some people would say is that it never made any sense to have that tight regulation of simply giving people rides. So obviously people would argue with the medical comparison. And I mean, actually, I was just reading an article about the new head of the FTC, who's somebody much, the article actually talks about how Biden is hiring people who are far more progressive than the people Obama had. And she's very critical of the power of Amazon, and Facebook, and Google. But their power is truly a new phenomenon. They're doing things people have never done before, and their power is extremely scary. In Uber's case, it was just they had this app and that facilitated uh, providing more taxi service. So what Uber did was offensive simply because they were ignoring the rule of law, which nobody should be able to do. But because what they were doing was so mundane, it doesn't strike me as raising some of the same kind of issues as Amazon and Facebook and Google do. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with that. And I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that the San Francisco Police Department should have shut up at Uber's headquarters and started arresting people and things like that. I just think it's interesting because the tech industry in particular seems to be able to just sort of bypass some of those regulations that like other people are forced to play by, right? Uh, and I think that the Uber example is just sort of, again, not the most egregious thing in the world, but kind of just the cherry on top in terms of like the things that big tech is able to get away with that other industries are not. Hmm. What is, I mean... But what are some of the things that you think of the other parts of big tech are able to get away? I mean, what are some of the other examples you would have? Yeah, I mean, no, I just think there's like, I don't know if you've read the Amazon Unbound book, but I mean, like Amazon is clearly taking certain data that they're not supposed to, that their competitors are using to basically lower the prices of their own products. Like, I just don't think that other industries like small mom and pop shops would be allowed to get away with something. Yeah. Like I well, think with some of the things with pop, data pop. collection and like, yeah. I I mean, you know, sending some of the stuff to Chinese companies. And again, they might not purposely be bypassing some national security laws, but like it clearly seems like there needs to at very least be more oversight in terms of what big tech is doing in general, both from a privacy side, from a business side. I mean, you could go on with the examples, but. And what Biden's new head of the FTC is planning to do is use the antitrust laws very aggressively and hope that the courts will back her up because. Amazon especially, but I mean, probably I don't know as much about Google, but I'm sure it's true of them too, are engaged in frightfully anti-competitive behavior. And that's something that the antitrust law should be used to address. And there's been this sort of laissez-faire attitude towards corporate bigness for the past 40 years, which only now is beginning to change. But given the composition of the courts, it might be too late. I do love moments on this podcast where the Trump administration alumni, Alex Titus, makes the case for the progressives about government regulation. I do have to say thank you, Alex, for your contribution. <laughs> yeah, we have yeah, to, we have and, to and, regulate and, all and, your voters, uh, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and actually, that's something that this article of the New Yorker this week about the new FTC head talks about is the fact that there was a benefit to the fact that for his own reasons, Trump didn't like big tech. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's one of those like, you know, the politics is a circle and not a spectrum where you can kind of come all the way around and meet the other side. Well, yeah, I mean, um, where you have, you know, President Trump and Josh Hawley basically closely aligned with the views of Bernie Sanders on an issue. Uh, I think that you're pretty bound and Jeff Merkley. I think that you're, you know, bound to get something done at some point. So, so I would hope so. There's so much we could cover on city of Portland. There's a lot. I mean, I, I think what I want to start with, even though it's wonky and people might, I think actually people probably do want to talk about this. Portland's form of government. When you, after you left the city council, you wrote a piece for Willamette week about like, here's five things we should do. And one of them was this is something the Portland City Club and folks from East Portland have been talking about for a long time, which is Portland's form of government, which is the commission form of government, which is very odd nationally. I think there's only one other metropolitan area that has this. And it's basically where city commissioners are assigned by the mayor to be the administrative head of certain bureaucracies of the city government. If I'm explaining that right, correct me if I'm wrong. You don't think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so very blunt. It's bad. It's ridiculous. So A, why hasn't it changed? It seems like that's a pretty common take. There's nobody, I, I, I don't hear anyone saying, actually, the commission form of government is the best and it's working. Why hasn't it changed? And what should the next iteration of Portland city government look like? There have been attempts to change it. The latest one, I think, was in 2007. And I voted against changing it because I hadn't thought about it very much. And I thought that Portland was a pretty nice city. So somebody must be doing something right. So why change it? And I think okay. that that's the way most voters felt. Now, I suspect that if anything went to the ballot to change Portland's form of government, even to change it into a monarchy you know, governed by dogs, um, <laughs> People would say, yep, got to shake up City Hall. <laughs> um, so I think that if anything gets to the ballot, it'll, it'll pass. What's terrible about the system is when you assign a commissioner bureaus, two things happen. Those bureaus become all important to them and everything else becomes unimportant. So it's a system designed to ensure the city council does not have shared priorities. Because if you get the Parks Bureau, you're going to fight for the Parks Bureau to get its share of money as opposed to the Police Bureau or the Fire Bureau or anything else. So this is – I can't swear that this is true, but it came from a very reliable source. Transportation was spectacularly underfunded in Portland for 30 years. They basically just let the streets rot, and that's why I spent four years trying to get a new funding source for transportation. Other localities like, you know, Washington County and the city of Bedford and a whole bunch of other cities had come up with local sources of funding for transportation to simply repair the streets and to make them safer. Portland had not. Earl Blumenauer, you know, yelled and screamed trying to get more money for transportation. When he was transportation commissioner, he did not do what I did and go to the voters asking for more money, but he pushed for the transportation to get more of the general fund. And what I was told is that Vera Katz really didn't like Earl, partly because they run against each other for mayor. And because Earl was the transportation commissioner, she didn't really like transportation. So she was going to be damned if she gave any general fund to transportation. No kidding. That is, that is insane. I mean, right. I mean, but it's plausible because of the system of government. You can't, it's inherently hard to believe that the mayor of a city would decide to ignore a fundamental public service because of the person who's in charge of that bureau 
but it's quite plausible. And again, this came from a highly reliable source. Wow. So well, there's so much there. Because I think you, I don't know if you would agree, but I think there, the general perception, I think, is that Farrah Katz was an exceptional mayor, was maybe the last great mayor of Portland, but she was also a legislator, which that behavior strikes me as very like legislative. <laughs> that I can imagine in a legislative context, for sure, like, you know, killing a bill that would, for example, benefit a municipality in someone's district because you're punishing them for whatever. You hear stories about that kind of thing happening, but you're right, at the city level, that does seem strange and also plausible. So I guess the follow-up question is, what should it look like? Some cities have, you've got the New York thing, which is kind of like its own legislature, I feel like. You've got the council manager option, which I think a lot of mid-sized cities have. Do you have a vision in mind about what the next iteration should be? Anything where you don't have commissioners overseeing specific bureaus is an improvement. I mean, there's certainly an argument for having a district instead of citywide elections to reduce the cost of campaigning. There's an argument to have multi-member districts because research has shown that that's more likely to lead to a diversified council. Hmm. And I mean, having a city manager would, you know, yeah, that would probably be a fine thing. But you could just have the mayor be the head of city government. The mayor would hire somebody to sort of function as city manager, even if they didn't have a title. I mean, one thing that's interesting is the mayor every year assigns, for the most part, assigns all the bureaus to him or herself, like during budget season. Right. Um, or at least in a lot of mayors have done that. There's actually nothing to prevent a mayor from simply assigning all the bureaus to himself permanently. The whole time. <laughs> they don't do it because it would make all the commissioners mad. But I actually think that if some mayor just had the guts to do it, after a few months, the commissioners would realize, huh, this gives me an opportunity to mess around with issues I inherently care about rather than things that I care about because I happen to get that bureau. I mean, would you- I had some of my most fun in the council. I mean, I really like my bureaus and I was committed to them, but I had some of my most fun in the council before bureaus were assigned. And I did things like brought in national experts on crime and policing to you know, talk about what some of the research shows about how to make policing actually effective. And I stopped doing things like that after I had my, my bureaus to work. So that I'm going to blow a perfect transition because I think Alex has a policing question, but I am curious. So would you advise Ted Wheeler, the current mayor of Portland, to do that now? Or do you think that's something where you have to run for mayor and say, my intention is to hold all the bureaus and in effect reform Portland City, Portland's form of government on my own? <laughs> well, this will sound flippant and I haven't paid close enough attention, but I don't have the impression that Ted has the greatest relationship with the rest of the council now. (laughs) So if he doesn't have much of a relationship to damage, what the hell, why not do it? (laughs) Fair point. If the relations are better than I, you know, from from a distance thing, then yeah, it would probably be dangerous. This is what I've been saying. Ted should just start blowing things up because I feel like he has nothing to lose at this point. Like just, (laughs) you gotta gotta go big and you go bold, you know? (laughs) Uh, He certainly has nothing to lose. (laughs) Yes. So Ben may have blown my transition earlier, but I I will just transition to it. Policing and crime. So want to talk a little bit about that. We've seen, I don't know if it's been the record number of shootings this year, but I think that it's been pretty darn close. I know that we're at least over a thousand shootings this year. We've blown past the record number of homicides. There is either companies or people, it seems like there's so many articles about private police forces in Portland now, it's hard to even keep track of who's employing private police officers or private security officers. I would say sort of crime and disorder are out of control. 
I'm curious from your perspective of, you may not agree with it as bluntly as I say it, but do you agree that we're sort of experiencing a record crime wave right now, we need to do something about it? And two, what do you think the progressive way forward is on this issue? Like, do you think that we do need more police officers? Do you think that we're just not using our police as effectively as we should? Sort of curious of, that was a great thing earlier when you said you brought in some policing experts, like tell us a little bit more about that too. So we definitely have seen a really alarming increase in crime nationwide. I don't know where we are in statistics compared to like where we were in 1992 when it was really bad, but the increase has been alarming. And I don't think, and it's nationwide, or at least in a lot of places, and I don't think anybody really understands why. Mm -hmm. And just like nobody really understands why crime dropped so much between 1994 and like 2015, Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a bizarre mystery. I mean, I was just reading an interview in Vox, I think, with Patrick Sharkey, who's a sociologist who's focused on crime and the police. And he was saying, yes, policing can reduce crime, but also over-policing breeds public mistrust, and the police are doing a lot of jobs that other people should be doing. So his answer was, you know, no, don't defund the police, but supplement the police with a lot of people who are better equipped to go to events which don't really require a person with a gun and to respond to mental health crises, et cetera. As far as how to use the police, one of the things that researchers look at is something that seems to be pretty effective, which is hotspot policing. There's researchers that say that crime is even more place-specific than it is person-specific. And if you look at the specific locations where there's a lot of crime and send the police there, there's evidence that it doesn't just move around the corner. There's locations that are sort of uniquely suited to crime. Now, one of the counter-arguments against that is, well, then that's sort of like profiling locations and uh, it makes the entire neighborhoods feel like under siege by police. I think that if the policing is done in a respectful way, it's possible to avoid that. So, I mean, I don't know what exactly the right number of police is, but if you had a bunch more people who were responding to the events that don't really require a person with a gun, that in effect, you would increase the size of the police force to deal with actual crime. I mean, I mean, I, I used to ask, I mean, before crime started going back up, when I was on the council, I would ask the police force, uh, I mean, I would ask during budget time, I would say, we've got the same number of police that we had 20 years ago and crime is much lower. Does that make any sense? And they said, well, calls are up. And I was like, hmm. yes, but what are the, are the calls about serious crime? And they were like, no, they're not. So the question is, okay, why are the police responding to those calls? I mean, we have yeah. relied on the police to deal with a whole bunch of social ills that it's not fair to ask them to address. And so, I mean, the logical thing to do is to have people experiencing mental health crises who don't seem to be, who aren't waving guns around to be responded to by social workers and to spend the, use the police resources to address locations and groups of people where you're seeing real danger of real crime. Hmm. I agree. I think that is, that is exactly the progressive answer. I think that seems to be sort of where the city of Portland's moving. They've deployed the cahoots model, I think, or something, some version of it. And I think I just read that they are expanding funding into it, but they are also, I think, trying to add more police officers at the same time. But by how much more are they expanding cahoots? I mean, because I think what Sharkey is talking about is something on a vast scale where you Mm -hmm. have as many non-police employees 
doing the functions that police are now being asked to do as you do police. I think you might need so to that would require a lot more money. I was going to say you might need to run for mayor to make to make that one happen <laughs> and take over all the bureaus. <laughs> that will be the second part of it. Um, so we, both Alex and I have one more question each, and both of them are gigantic. So we're going to transition to the final two questions. When I emailed you some of the general areas we wanted to talk about, I kind of laughed out loud when you perked up at property tax reform as one of the things you wanted to talk about. So we needed to make time for it. So we're transitioning to property tax. And I think, as I'm sure you're aware, the average, even the average politico in Oregon, someone who's relatively well engaged, I think has a very low level understanding of how property taxes in Oregon work. I'll put myself in this category. I'm by no means a property tax expert. We've got assessed values. We've got market values. Sometimes the taxes go up really big in one year, and we're not really sure why, and people are always complaining about it. Can you explain what is wrong? What is wrong with Oregon's property tax system? And then maybe we can move on to solutions. But just at a starting point, what's wrong with the way that we currently collect property taxes? The biggest problem is that based on a measure the Bill Sizemore got passed in 1996, the amount of property taxes you pay is based partially on what your property was worth in 1996. <laughs> so if you've got if they're only the property tax of an individual piece of property, you're only allowed to increase by 3% a year, no matter what's happening to the real market value. So you can have examples where in a neighborhood that's gentrified a lot since 1996, the house was worth $50,000 then, and it's worth you know $800,000 now. And in a neighborhood that hasn't gentrified a lot, the house was worth 70,000 then, and it's worth 210,000 now. And it pays a higher property tax bill than the $800,000 property because of what it was worth in 1996. Bananas. And in Portland, this plays out in a really dramatic way because it's the largely the properties east of 82nd and especially east of 122nd that haven't appreciated that much. So they are paying a hugely unfair share of property taxes. And it's the gentrifiers in inner northeast that are paying extremely low property taxes. Um, so, so the legis I mean, and the legislature would need to send something out for a vote of the people uh, in order to change this, and they never have. I think partly because legislators don't get property taxes, to, or they don't think they do, to get to do state funding, so it's just not a big issue. And also, as you pointed out, I mean, most people are unaware of this inequity. It would be really complicated to change the system to one where it's simply based on real market value because some people's taxes would actually go up in a big way. Yeah. One thing that I have proposed is at least for new bond measures, which are approved by voters, have the taxes based on real market value, not the measure 50 assessed value. Right. And was reason that would only address like 15% of the problem, but it's particularly acute 15% because Measure five restricts the amount of money people pay as a, you know, as a percentage of the value of their property. And actually, most of the people east of 122nd are at their measure five limit. So when new levies are passed, they don't pay more. This is compression, measure, right? That part of measure 50 doesn't apply to bonds. So those people east of 122nd get hammered when bonds pass. So I propose this modest little fix to part of the problem. And what, uh, I'd be glad to talk about it for another hour if you got the time. <laughs> so that with that phenomenon you're talking about is called compression, right? This idea that there's a max that you can pay per household. Right. And I think, I mean, this is, uh, I actually think that compression has been 
somewhat useful in the context of this unfair system, because at least in the East Portland example, it's preventing poorer people paying really high taxes from paying even higher taxes. Can you reset when a home is sold and there's a new owner who comes in? Is Measure 5 connected to the property or the homeowner? Would it require an... Uh, uh, it's, a, it's Measure 50. Me- measure measure 50. 5 limits the property taxes as a percentage of real market value. Measure 50 is the 3% thing. And no, unlike California's Prop 13, it's not tied to the homeowner. It doesn't change when the property is sold. I see. Um, it's, it's forever. It doesn't matter how many times a property is sold, the tax can't increase by more than 3% a year, no matter what's happened to the real market value. So that could be one potential ballot measure is basically like, we reset when the home is sold. So like, you're never going to go above 3% for a homeowner, but when it's sold to a new person at a new market value, then it resets the 3% at whatever the market value is. Yeah. And that, I mean, the League of Cities has proposed that repeatedly. My understanding is it doesn't pull all that great and the Hmm. realtors would raise a lot of money to campaign against it. Hmm. So uh, the decision has been made over and over that it's not worth doing. I think that it might be worth putting on the ballot at some point, at least make the realtors fight for it. But one of the reasons I propose this modest bond-oriented thing is it struck me as innocuous enough that it's not going to raise any interest group, including the realtors up in arms. Mm-hmm. So thank you for going into the wonkiest of areas. We'll have you back for episode number two with Commissioner Novick focused on property tax reform. But Alex has a big political question to close us out. I was going to say that uh, that may be the easiest public policy issue to digest ever. So, uh, <laughs> glad, glad we covered property property taxes in two minutes. Uh, <laughs> But now transitioning totally from wonkiness to politics, I'm really curious of your answer on this issue. So, of course, heading into 2022, it's probably going to be a blowout year for Republicans. Of course, you know, the political climate looks that way. Americans don't like to vote again for the same party that they just elected to the presidency. The GOP just did very well in elections in New Jersey and Virginia. And actually, I saw today that Cook just moved the Oregon governor's race from strong D to likely D or something along those lines. Basically, they shifted it a little bit closer to the middle. Uh, it's still not a toss up by any means, but you know there has been at least a little bit of a shift there. And I thought actually what you said earlier was really interesting that you said that the GOP is actually a lot more competitive than people think. And I know at least from the Republican side in Oregon, a lot of people are really excited this year for the governor's race and for a couple of other races. And Usually people are just very sad and depressed about these things. So at least the, the, the GOP seems to think they have something going for them this year. We'll see if they can actually make that case. But if you were the main chief political officer or whatever for the Oregon Democratic Party, you're facing a bad year. What are some of the issues, though? Like, where do you see upside for Democrats? Like, what are the issues that you think, you know, Democrats should be highlighting to, you know, maybe win back some of those suburban voters who might be thinking about voting for the GOP or just sort of disaffiliated working class voters like what would be your kind of areas to focus on uh, if you were helping the Democrats heading into 2022? Well, the problem is that the reason that we've seen the shift to the Republicans is, as you point out, it sort of normally happens in response to whoever's in power, but also people are worried about inflation and people are just irritated by the persistence of the pandemic. And there's not a heck of a lot that people at the state and local level can do about that. There's a limited amount. I mean, one thing that I would do is really do as good a job as possible of letting people know the extent to which it's reasonably safe to go back to normal. Because I was reading David Lenhart's article this morning saying for people under 65 who are vaccinated, the COVID 
really isn't that much more threatening than a regular flu. And if Pfizer's and Merck's treatment pills are authorized, that'll make that even better. Now, the problem is that a lot of people interact with people over 65, and so that's, you know, problematic. But I think that a real effort to let people know what the risks actually are for different groups of people is important. It might be doomed to fail, but if you could get 30% of the people to know, actually, it's not that, you know, I mean, assuming this is true, I'm hoping that it's true and Omnicrom or whatever it's called doesn't destroy this. But the more people become confident that they can go back to normal, the better. And that's something I think that you can, it's, I mean, you should work on that at the federal level, but it's something you can spend time working on at the local level. And then, I mean, this is a combination um, federal uh, state thing. I mean, Joe Manchin said that at one point that they should scale back the child family and investments in the Build Back Better Act to just one thing. And that was offensive because there were several good things in it. But I'm worried that the child care provision, the pre-K provision might be problematic because they require state match for one thing mm. and might take a while to get going. I mean, if I were the Democrats at the federal level, I would make sure that we pass something that is not phased in, that is pretty universal, that doesn't require state match. Like, and if, you know, doing that with childcare subsidies is, I think, kind of an op- obvious thing, particularly when people are worried about inflation. Mm-hmm. Making a big, immediate investment in something that helps deal with a major cost, I think, would be a big thing. And then at the state level, do a good job of broadcasting the hell out of that and making sure everybody access it as quickly as possible. But I mean, I think that there's not a hell of a lot you can do about inflation and there's not a much you can do about so the general tendency of what happens in midterms to happen. So unless the economy turns around and COVID start looks looking a lot better, it's hard for the Democrats to overcome that. So your your advice to Democrats is wear a helmet as we go into 2022. <laughs> um, I mean, my advice is pass legislation that has an immediate positive impact on people Mm -hmm. and do as much as we can to help people go back to normal, including better education on how safe it might be to go back to normal under what circumstances. Yeah, I like that. And that actually aligns with some of the movement I'm seeing. Like on Twitter, Rep. Dacia Graber, um, a Democrat from Tigard, uh, Rep. Lisa Reynolds, a Democrat from Southwest Portland and um, a doctor, both have started calling for a conversation about off ramps um, from COVID restrictions. So I think Democrats are slowly starting to get there in their own version of it. But to your point, what's wild is we don't know what Omicron is going to mean for Oregon um, or for the US, and that could kind of just blow everything up. Um, uh, oh, I, I forgot a very important thing. Sure. Attack Republicans. <laughs> Point out that Republicans, by trash, by going along with the anti-vax movement, are continuing the pandemic, and that's what's causing inflation. Um, and they're doing nothing to make things better for anybody, and they're totally irresponsible, and uh, they need to be defeated. That wait, sorry, I, I think I heard you. So you said attack Republicans over the vaccine mandate, opposing that. About, yeah, over you know spreading mis- spreading misinformation, attacking van- vaccine mandates, um, kowtowing to people who are refusing to get vaccinated as a matter of principle, and say that 
mean, yes, COVID is continuing and it's hurting the economy and it's the Republicans' fault, which is pretty much true. <laughs> we will end on that note of unity and uh, of coming together. <laughs> but that, that is, I think, what we will see ultimately happen. And the question will be, will voters have it? Um, because I think it's going to be Republicans blaming Democrats for uh, like what we're seeing at schools and, uh, uh, you know, preventing us from getting back to normal, to your point. And Democrats saying, well, actually, it's the Republicans' fault. We can't do that because they're elevating anti-science people. That, and that will be yeah. the public discourse that will decide the election. Oh, oh, I forgot one more thing. <laughs> yes, young, people have been falling, young people have been falling away from Biden. Young people have no idea that Biden's about to make a huge investment in fighting climate change, which young people care about. So Democrats should be broadcasting that back from the rooftops in any way they can reach young people. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And fingers crossed that uh, Build Back Better is passed with plenty of time for Democrats to campaign on it. So, okay, we are past our time. Our final question for all guests, this is a little unique for you since you're not currently holding public office, but thank you for coming on. And if folks want to learn more about you, follow your work, or get in touch with you, what's I, I'm still a subscriber of your newsletter, which I know you occasionally write for. So is there a way for people to kind of follow your work or be in touch? You know what? I think what is, I think it's info at novicforportland.com is the email address for my newsletter. So I think that people can just email there and I will figure out how to add people to the newsletter. Cool. Yeah. Info at novicforportland.org. .org. Perfect. Uh, well, on that note, thank you so much for coming on and for covering such a broad range of policy and politics. We really enjoyed the conversation and we certainly hope we can do it again. So thank you, Steve. I did too. Thank you both very much. <laughs>